You're listening to Career Up Now's Socially Distanced Close-Up Podcast. I'm your host, Bradley Caro Cook. Today, we're joined by Esty Rosenfeld, who is the owner and principal at Rosenfeld Family Law. She wanted to make a change in society and therefore created her family law firm. Esther, welcome. So thank you so much for joining us today. I would love if you would share how did you become and why did you become an entrepreneur and also attorney? When I was 16 in high school at Hebrew Academy of Nassau County on Long Island, my one of my closest friends and I, we both decided we wanted to be lawyers. We liked arguing, we liked words. I took a class, my English teacher at the time taught us some thing, some work of literature. And I remember her talking about he who defines the truth, you know, who, the person who defines the truth is kind of wins. And I remember just being intrigued by that whole notion of truth having different aspects, depending on where you stand, who you are, what you're seeing. and the words having the capacity to capture that and persuade. So anyway, that was sort of the germ of the idea and I, I really liked words. And so um, I always wanted to be a lawyer since I was 16 at least. And then after college, I during college I worked in law firms. This was in New York City. And then came to law school out here in California. Also formed pretty early on the idea that I wanted to work as a child advocate. And when I went to law school, that was what I wanted to do. Excuse me, I volunteered at a place called Sacramento Child Advocates. I went to law school up at UC Davis. And working was always part of what, like even in college, I worked to explore things I was interested in in law school. I worked to explore things I was interested in. And that kind of helped form where I wanted to go. And then I was uh, working in, in initially as a public defender in the juvenile dependency unit. So there was a special unit that was established in Alameda County back then to represent abused and neglected kids going through the system. And that was my introduction to practicing law as a lawyer. And it was an amazing experience, fabulous training, heavy caseloads, you know, they just kind of get thrown in, trial by fire, so to speak and got a lot of experience under my belt in a very short time and really liked it, but it was very intense. And I think I burnt out in some way. I just kind of was overwhelmed with the um, intractability of the problems and the lack of resources that the system has to really help people overcome the, the systemic problems of abuse, addiction, and the perpetuation of those generationally. And so, I had taken a family law class when I was in law school and it always stayed with me that I really enjoyed family law and it touched on some of the things that interested me in juvenile law as well, the whole notion of child's best interests and, and custody, et cetera. And so that's when I started practicing and I took a mediation course around the same time. So it's interesting as you're asking the question, I'm tracing it back, I'm remembering there were various things that led me to where I am today. And that is how I came to start practicing family law first at a few different law firms and small law firms as family law firms tend to be. And then in 2008, I opened my own firm and that's been the case, you know, that I've been Rosenfeld Family Law doing litigation and mediation. Although in the last two years, I've cut down severely on litigation. I don't take litigated cases anymore. I'm not really interested in the court battles. What advice would you provide 
your younger self before you got into practicing law and starting your own firm? I think for me, that's a, such a good question, Bradley. I think my, I, I would ask, I would advise my younger self to, I mean, some of the best experiences I had in forming my lawyering were through mentorships. I had an amazing mentor. I had a few mentors that were fabulous. One of whom I met at the public defender's office years ago when I was actually doing criminal defense work. And to this day is a very dear friend of mine and just taught me so much, not only about lawyering and cross-examining hostile witnesses and persuasion and preparation for trial and all of that, but even just, he's an incredibly spiritual person and he taught me a lot about spirituality and humanity and compassion. And he was an amazing mentor. And then I had a mentor in family law that was also just a wonderful woman, also who I'm, you know, in touch with to this day. And she just had, you know, a fantastic work ethic and really smart. And it was really fun working because we would chew over things together with, we had an amazing paralegal in that office as well. Anyway, mentors are, are, to my mind, one of the key ways to really grow yourself in the career direction that you're going. And so advice I would give myself maybe when I was a lot younger and more timid, like when I was at a big law firm in New York while I was an undergraduate, to be less afraid of the lawyers and you know, kind of go to them more for help. I don't know that it would have made a difference because I think when you're, you know, 20 years old and you're talking to people that are in their 40s, God knows now we're like, ha, huh? but back then they seemed so old and wise and intimidating and accomplished. But I think, you know, to always be willing to put yourself out there and ask for the help and make connections and talk to people because people are your best resource. I love that. And my final question for you is, What's one value that you hold dear in your personal and professional life that you associate with your success? One value that I hold dear in my personal and professional life that I associate with success. It's been so said and it's so cliche, but follow your joy, follow your bliss, like do what feels good. If you, if it, if you don't love it, and I'll give you an illustration. I mean, this was so much faster than I thought, I guess, you're doing one after another. So I didn't expect it to be so short, but if you have a moment, I'll give you a great illustration from my own life. Yeah, I would love that. Okay, so um, back when I was at the public defender's office and I was first doing juvenile work, there was a sense of like the gestalt was, the juvie is like the kitty cord. It was less taken seriously, even though the work was incredibly intense, very meaningful. I got infected with this sense that I, to do real public defender work, I have to do you know the, the big boy, big girl crimes, right? Misdemeanors and felonies. And really wanted to work as a public defender in criminal and not in juvenile. And so I started making that transition while I was still at that office. That was the Alameda County Public Defender's Office. First I did a juvenile delinquency work, which I loved. I loved working with those teenagers. And then I was trying to get a job at a public defender's office. And at the time, maybe now as well, it was very hard. They were very competitive. They had, you know, a lot of applicants. And so I ended up going up to Humboldt County, believe it or not. And I lived in Eureka for a while. And I worked in one of the conflict offices there as a public defender or conflict counsel, but it was the same work. 
and it was also amazing people in that office and, and great work. But at some point I was so done with it. Like there was something, again, that issue of it, it's such an intractable problem, so much drug addiction, not enough resources, people just stuck in these, in these lifestyles. And I had a few years earlier done volunteer work with a prison watchdog group. One of the people that I had interviewed, a man by the name of Robert Garcia, who was in prison for life, somehow got a hold of my address and started writing me letters and sending me art that he made, incredible drawings that he would make. He was up there at Pelican Bay. And his letters talked all about, he, here he is behind bars for life telling me, a white woman out free, to do not be confined. Your, the only things that are confining you are your own limitations in your own head. It's all of this spiritual work. I think he was reading things while he was in prison. and just sending me these inspiring messages that came right at the time that I needed to hear them about break free of something that's keeping you stuck. And I realized I'm stuck in this like a notion that to be a real public defender, I have to be doing this work that I'm actually not really enjoying anymore. And so it, it, those messages from Robert Garcia behind bars about freedom and like following your joy and doing what feels good and not staying stuck by notions you have in your own head that are limiting you was incredibly liberating. And that was what helped me kind of see my way out and begin a uh, sort of redefine my career, begin again in family law a few years later. So that's my example of following your bliss. Wow. That's, uh, you. Oh, there you are. <laughs> that's amazing. That's amazing. What a great way to wrap up the interview. What, whatever happened to Robert? He was in prison for life. I still have his letters. I, after I moved out of San Francisco, I no longer volunteered for that um, prison watchdog group. So I don't know. I didn't hear from him again. I don't know. I wonder if there's a way to find out or if you even want to find out. Yeah, that would be interesting. I mean, I still have his letters somewhere. I could, in theory, try to track him down. But this was a long time ago. Yeah. Hopefully he's still doing well or maybe he's out. Maybe you don't want to track him down. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he no longer has your address. Um, no, that's, that's amazing. So, you know, one of the things that I, that I felt like in my, the arc of my career that I learned is like, Robert Garcia is probably a beautiful soul with a very good heart. He was an abused kid. He mm. then, you know, after services were thrown at him as a child, he then was labeled a juvenile delinquent, you know, sent to California Youth Authority, learned how to become a better criminal there. They're not, you know, the whole notion of the juvenile delinquency system is to be rehabilitated. That's what it was when it was founded in the 1800s. The whole idea was let's rehabilitate people, but that's not what happens Tachlis, right? So, mm. so, and then they, people become criminals. So it's again, it's that cyclical thing that is so overwhelming in our society that it's just a tough nut to crack. It's not, people are not born criminals. A little infant is not born bad. They're made and there's a lot of factors that play into the making of that person. So anyway, I don't know what happened to Robert Garcia, but I hope he is well wherever he is. I love that story. And I want to thank you so much for all of your time today and wish you tremendous success in all your worthy endeavors. You're, oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Good to talk to you.